0: The New Testament Book of Romans is a masterpiece of the Christian faith. Written to the new believers in first century Rome, it continues to speak to believers today. More than that, it is God's revealed truth to the world of His love for mankind and His plan to bring spiritual renewal to the world. It's heady stuff, this letter. Peace with God through faith. Struggling in the tension of doing things my way or God's way. The faithfulness of God and His incredible love for every one of us. God's love can be overwhelming. This learning to live in the freedom of God's grace. That's why we have titled this eight-week series, Drinking from Fire Hydrants, Renewed by Overwhelming Grace listen as pastor nate shares from the inspired words of the great teacher paul from romans chapters 5 through 8 on god's overwhelming grace
1: good morning. morning how's everybody doing today i think we might be in trouble i already see people fanning themselves and uh so if, if you guys can help me, out, it gets really hot in the balcony. So if everybody on the bottom just could not breathe for the next 35 minutes, it, no, I'm just kidding. Um, hey, I get to continue on in this series that, that we call Drinking from Fire Hydrants. And this idea of being overwhelmed, really, with the grace of God. See, we were sitting around in our staff meetings, and we knew we wanted to teach on, on this section of Romans, chapters 5 through 8. And we were reading through it together, and we just kept realizing how overwhelming this concept of God's grace was, that as we read it, we were just blown away with it. So that's why we called it drinking from fire hydrants, this idea that that we could drink as much as we want from this section, from these these truths, and never drink it all in. And that's the grace of God, the grace that that is so clear in the book of Romans. And so this morning, I really want to dive deep into this. How do we really connect with this grace but I think grace is a, a challenging concept for a lot of us, right? Because we think of grace, and so often grace just feels kind of cheap, right? Like, it doesn't feel like it's, you know, it's kind of letting somebody off the hook, bailing somebody out for something that they should have done, right? You see people, and you're kind of like, oh, they, they kind of deserve to justice on that. But on the same token, I don't think any of us want to live in a world of just pure justice, Right? I mean can you imagine like if your car was a perfectly just car and like every time you were driving down the road anytime you broke any sort of speed limit or anything like that just like a ticket printed out right off your dash <laughs> Tony would be broke right like I mean oh, we don't we don't want that so we want grace but we want real grace we want authentic grace grace that's transformative I was thinking about that uh, a couple weeks ago I've, I've talked in here before about my friend Josh and my friend Josh, we grew up together. We were, we were best friends growing up. In fact, for a while, Josh actually lived at my parents' house when we were in high school, and we shared a room together. And, and we talked about everything. We talked about our hopes and dreams and what girls we thought were cute and everything that mattered to us, 18-year-old or 17-year-old uh, boy. And we graduated high school, and Josh went one way, and I went another way. And last time I saw Josh was at uh, my wedding. And Josh came through, and he had this new girlfriend, and they were going off somewhere to, to discover dreams together. And Josh made poor decision after poor decision, and um, I lost touch with Josh. And I didn't actually hear from him until several months ago. I get a letter uh, from a, a jail up in Washington. And, I realized I did some searching on it and realized Josh had done some really bad things, some, some awful things. And he was now sitting in a jail cell waiting for his court date, and he was sober, and he was clean, and he realized just the weight of destruction that was all around him. And I hurt for my friend, and he asked me to pray for him. And I remember struggling with this. So I didn't even know how to pray for my friend. Do I pray that my friend gets justice I mean, justice meant that he would spend the rest of his life in prison, that all of his relationships in his life would be, would be severed, that his kids would not grow up to know their father, that their pain and suffering, all the things he'd done would just be piled on him. I didn't want that for my friend. But I also didn't want Josh just to get off on some sort of technicality, right, for the judge just to throw out the case, because that wasn't right either, because he had seriously hurt people, and the people he hurt deserved some justice, So what I came to is praying for for grace, from the kind of grace that only God could give, grace that's so powerful, that's so overwhelming, that's so transformational that it would change Josh's life forever, grace that would bring him into relationship with God, that he would feel the love and comfort from the Savior grace that would would help him overcome his addictions, overcome his habits, grace that would help him be the father for his kids that they needed to be no matter where he was, in jail or out of jail. And so this is the prayer I began to pray for Josh. And so I'm thinking about it this morning. I realized that this is the prayer that I have for myself also. It's the prayer that I have for my daughters, the prayer that I have for my wife, for my friends, that we would experience this grace of God that's so overwhelming that it would help us, that it would transform our lives. See, last week in uh, chapter five, we were uh, studying about how broken we are, right? And Pastor Ron was up sharing. And in Romans chapter five, it basically says that you were born with a sin nature. The sin nature passed on from generation to generation. And and in fact, you've made it worse. (laughs) But for all who have received The gift of Jesus Christ, that our our story is changed, that our DNA, in a way, our spiritual DNA has been restructured, and now we have grace. And so in chapter 6, Paul kind of explains this. This is what grace looks like, and this is how grace can take effect in your life. So let's read it together. Let's read uh, Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. If you got one of the Bibles that's in front of you in the pew, it's uh, page 942. see if I can read it better. I just totally butchered this for service. It was bad. Here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death." in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died for sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, therefore, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What a powerful passage. He's saying this is what it means to live in grace. See, he wanted to clarify, because after the, pa- the previous passage, he just said, don't you realize that this sin nature that was passed on from generation to generation, that all of your sins can be absolved, can be, can, the grace of God can forgive you of those sins. So the natural question is then, if all my sins, everything bad I do, the grace of God can cover that up, why not just continue to sin, right? It kind of, imagine it this way. Imagine I have a sandbox in my backyard. Okay, I don't. But imagine I've got this sandbox. And um, my daughter goes out one day and starts digging holes in the sandbox. And she's digging through the sand all the way down into the dirt. And I'm seeing her do this. But I also know that later that afternoon, I've got a dump truck of sand coming to deliver sand to to kind of refill the sandbox. And she comes into the house. And she's kind of sad. And she's kind of crying. And she's feeling guilty. And she goes, Dad, Dad, uh, I'm sorry. But I dug holes in our sandbox. I dug too deep. I dug all the way into the dirt. And I, I hear the dump truck coming at the same time, right? And I go, well, let's just go outside and let's just see. And right, the dump truck just like dumps a huge load of sand and all of her holes are completely, you know, they're just completely covered over. See, I think that's kind of like the grace of God. He's saying that no matter how, dig you deep, you, how deep you dig your holes, no matter how many holes you dig in your life, no matter how much you wreck your life, I can bring restoration and healing to your life. I can forgive those sins. And it's a powerful truth. So then why not just dig deeper holes so we can experience more grace, right? It's a good question. But I think Paul, he he asked that question. And if we were to really take that to the extreme, we realize how ugly of a question that really is, right? So if I'm to lie and cheat and steal, then would I experience more grace from God? And if that's the case, then what if I beat my kids and I cheated on my wife? Then, oh man, I could really experience the grace of God. And even saying that, we realize how ugly that is and how wrong and twisted that is. No, if we want to experience the grace of God, we don't submit to sin. We submit to him, right? And that's the key difference that Paul is trying to get at in chapter 6. He's saying, if you want to experience the fullness of God, realize your position in him. Realize that he has already died for your sins, and he has risen so that you can live a new life. And if you want to experience grace, that's the best way to experience grace, So how do we submit to God's grace? How do we fully experience this? And I think there's a couple of things in this passage that we just need to know. These theological truths that are deep, they're like drinking from fire hydrants, that the more we understand these things, the more it transforms our life. And the first thing I see in this passage is this, to know that you have joined the union right? That if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, the Bible promises that you have joined into union, into relationship with Jesus himself, with God himself. See, in verse three, it says this. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See, he takes this. This is the assumption. Don't you realize that when you are baptized, you are baptized into Christ Jesus, that you were made one with him, that you were linked with him. When I was in college, I worked for a little bit at a metal fab shop, and I did a little bit of welding and stuff like that. And welding's a, a pretty interesting, uh, or it's pretty cool, actually, because you take metal, and you actually melt two pieces of metal, and you add a little bit more metal so that those two pieces of metal actually become one. right? And once you do that, you can't, you can't separate those and make them two. They, they've become one together. Like if you glue two things together, you can actually kind of pull those apart and pretty much keep the two things equal. But when we have accepted the Lord as our Savior, we become one with Jesus. We become united with him. And that's what what he's talking about here in this process uh, of baptism. Now, it's important to realize and to remember that baptism doesn't save us. If you've been here and you've seen baptisms and, and people, it's a an act to show what Christ has done inside of our life, but that doesn't save us, right? But it is a part of our conversion story. It's a part of us coming to faith and repentance and being filled with the Holy Spirit. But baptism is the thing we can all point to, right? It's the thing we can see. It's the thing you can really mark down on a calendar that you can look at. Your friends and your family saw it. And he's saying, in that act, the very symbol of you being united united with Jesus is made obvious in that. And that has powerful implications for our life. See, my wife works in education, right? And when she uh, signed off her school district, when she like signed her contract, she uh, joined the union. Like it wasn't an option. That's just how it works, right? You sign up as a teacher, you're part of the union. And the way the union works is one voice—the voice of one teacher—becomes magnified because they're part of a, a group, right? I mean, that's how all unions work. You, the many give voice to the individual. But what amazes me about being part of the union of Jesus is the exact opposite. See, all of us, we could come together, and we could all go all together and outside, and in one voice, we could shout up to heaven, God, save us, because we're all telling you to do this. And that wouldn't save us, right? In fact, we could get every Christian on the face of the earth, and we could all get together in Texas or someplace with plenty of open space, and we could all gather together, and we could shout out to heaven, God, give us heaven, and it wouldn't be enough. Yet through one man, God himself, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, we've received the very grace of God, that the power uh, of the Christian story comes through one, not through many. So what really are the implications of this union? If we are united with Jesus, and that's very key to what Paul is talking about, what are the implications of that? And I think the first implication that that Paul gets out here is that we need to know that our sin nature is dead. He says this, if you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death. That that we were buried, therefore, um, with him by baptism into death, in order that as Christ had been raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. And he goes on to explain how this death is final. It's a death for all sins. That when Jesus died on the cross, that part of you, that broken old self of you that constantly gives in to temptations, that's broken, that's weak, that's been passed down from Adam, that part of you is dead. It no longer has control of your life. See, going back to last week, it said, From Adam, we've all inherited this sin nature. My dad was a sinner. His dad was a sinner before him. Now I'm a sinner, and I'm going to pass on my sin nature to my daughters, right? And on top of that, I make it worse by just sinning on top of that. Yet the good news of the gospel is so clear that Jesus died for those sins. And now our sin nature, that broken part of us, is impotent. It's dead. It's powerless. It can no longer control our lives. That doesn't mean sin is dead, right? I mean, all of us who are followers of Jesus know that we still struggle day to day with sin. Yet that power, it is now possible for us to walk away from sin, not because we're such good people, but because Christ has conquered sin in our life. kind of reminds me of this story. And I might have told it in here before because it was like a traumatic story for me as a 12-year-old. But I was 12 years old, and my dad decided that it was time to take me out into the woods and make me a man, right? And so uh, we go out, and we hike up this canyon in eastern Oregon. And it was a particularly dry year, and it was hot. And the rattlesnakes were everywhere. I mean, everywhere we went, every bush that we walked by, every grass that we kind of hit, you could just hear the rattlesnakes just Every like, you know, you'd step over a rock. And you just knew on the other side of that rock was a coiled rattlesnake. And I was so scared of these rattlesnakes. I hated them. Like I was just, I remember just not even wanting to go walking anywhere because of the rattlesnakes. And we're sitting down by the river one night, and we're boiling water to drink. And as we're sitting there, this massive rattlesnake It might not have been that big. I was 12. But it was huge, right? (laughs) It comes curling in behind me. And we jump up. And we decide we need to conquer this snake by killing it and trying to eat it, right? Uh, Because that's, I don't know, that seemed logical at the time. So we kill the snake. and, And we cut its head off. And we throw the head in the river so that the head doesn't bite us. And if you've ever seen this before, it's the creepiest thing ever. This snake continued to squirm and to wiggle and to coil. And its rattlesnake, it kept going. Now this snake was dead; it was not alive anymore. Its head was gone, and in fact, it had no power. It couldn't hurt me. It could, you know, it couldn't do anything to me. But I was scared to death of the snake. And I remember we were trying to cook it. And my dad's like, "Grab the snake!" And I go to grab it, and it tried to bite me with its like stump. And it just, oh, <laughs> it scared me to death. And we tried to put it in the frying pan, and it just would squirm off, right? And so finally, we gave up and we just threw the snake out in the bushes. And I remember laying in my tent that night, and I could just hear it, you know. And I was just scared. I didn't want to leave the tent. I just wanted to lay in there all night until the sunrise. And I think in some ways that's what, what our sin nature is like, that we have these, these sins, these temptations in our life that we've given to over and over and over again. And they feel so powerful. They feel so scary. We can hear them rattling in our life all the time. Yet the Bible teaches us that that part of our life is dead. We don't need it. We never needed it. That we have the power to say no to those things. No matter how scary they might seem, no matter how overwhelming they might seem, the power of the cross conquered those sins that that part of our life was buried with Christ Jesus and it wasn't raised. That part of our life stayed in the tomb. And Paul uses baptism to drive this point home. This idea that when we are submerged underwater, it represents the death, the death that Jesus died for us. When we're raised to a new life, that death, that old part of us stays dead and it's been dead for 2,000 years. But the story is not just that death has been conquered. The story is even more beautiful than that. This is the power of the gospel. It's not just that your sins have been forgiven. It's that you are raised to a new life. And I think the third theological truth that we really need to to reckon with and to to let dwell deep in our life is this, that know your new life has been risen. I love this. He says, "Um, as Christ has been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He's saying, on the day that you received Jesus, you were given a brand new life, that you could walk in this new life. And this is a powerful truth. But so often we just focus on the negative side of it, right? Okay, when you become a Christian, all your sins are forgiven, and that's great. But it's even more than that. You've been given an eternal life, a life in the future. And that eternal life starts now. And that we can live that, we can experience it now. In fact, he says this, that... um, that you've been brought to death, to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. That righteousness now is possible, not because we're really good people, but because of the work of the cross in our life. See, we all know that we are impossible of doing righteous things, right? If you just try to be a good person, that that never truly works out. In fact, the Bible says that all of our righteousness outside of Christ are like filthy rags or just garbage. They're never good enough. Yet, when Christ has died for us, he's given us this new life. And now as a result, righteousness is possible. In fact, he's calling us to it. He says you, every aspect of your body, every member of your body is supposed to be an instrument of righteousness. This is a powerful concept that all the commandments, all the rules in here are not just some sort of, you know, wishful dream of God. They're not just something that God thinks are a good idea, but, but are impossible. No, these are the things that, that he knows are possible for us. In fact, he crafted us to do all these things, and he's calling us to be these people that he's designed us to be. But I think sometimes that feels like this daunting mountain out in the distance, like this mountain of righteousness that maybe we're supposed to climb. And we feel a little bit like a worn out traveler who day after day walks towards this mountain and they feel like that mountain's never, they can't even get to the base of the mountain. And they're exhausted and they run out of food and they run out of water and their shoes are tore up and their feet are blistered. And right at kind of the shadow of the mountain, they fall down ready to die. And they just lay down there expecting that life is over. Several days later, they wake up and they're in this camp, this camp of an expert mountain climber, right? And the camp, he, you know, this climber has fed the person and has kind of bathed them and fixed their, their wounds to give them new gear. And, and they wake up, and they're feeling good. They're going, oh, man, I feel so much better. Oh, this is great. I'm just going to hang out in this camp forever. I've been saved. I was dead. I thought my life was over. I was laid there for dead, but now I've got, I'm, I've, I'm alive. And the climber says, no, no. Tomorrow, we go up the mountain. We're going to do it together. We'll strap each other. You're going to be strapped to me, and we're going to go up that mountain together. And I think that's kind of a a picture of what's going on in this passage, is that not just have we been saved, not just have we been saved to sit around and to think about how great being saved is, but we've been saved to this new life, this lifestyle of righteousness that God has called us to. And what's amazing is, that, that he has made it possible for our life. So if these truths are true, if, one, we are united with, with Jesus, we are made one with him, and therefore, our sin nature is dead, and we have been raised to a new life, what, what are the implications of this? What are we to do with this? And I think there's some things that really stand out in this text that, that are kind of application for us today. And first, it comes here in verse 12. It says, do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The first point here is, let's leave the dead man buried. right? The Bible says that that old part of our life, that sinful part of our life, it's been buried. So let's leave it there. Let's not keep bringing it up and, and going back to those same sins, those same temptations that have haunted us year after year after year. You know, it's funny with that snake story. I was kind of, I, was, I had written it into the message and I was starting to doubt it. I was like, did that really happen? <laughs> like, can that actually happen? So I did a, a little YouTube search and I saw all these videos and oh my goodness, it was like I was flashback to being 12 years old out there in the woods with my dad, right? And, and all of a sudden, like that same anxiety started to come up again in my life. But sometimes we do that with sin, right? We've been saved from these sins, and maybe we've walked away from these sins, or or maybe we haven't yet. But we keep kind of going back to them. We keep kind of playing around with them, saying, oh, they're not that bad. I know I don't need them anymore, but I kind of like them. And God is saying, don't let sin reign in your body anymore. Don't obey its passions. See, that's a good way to describe sometimes our sin, right? It's these passions, these things we desire so deeply, and we submit to them. We say, oh, I don't have any choice in this. I have to do these things. For 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I have always given in to my selfishness. I've always given in to this rage or this hatred or these, these hurt feelings that I just express and grudges. I've always given in to those things. How can I now be done with those things? We're reminded that those things are dead. We don't need them anymore. So don't let them reign in our body. I want to give just a couple of um, kind of applications for this. These are things we see throughout scripture that God is calling us to to walk away um, from these, submitting to these sins. And the first thing I think is this, is submit every aspect of your life to God. See, the answer for overcoming sin is not just trying to avoid sin because That's a a never-ending process, right? In fact, it's overwhelming. We can't do it. But instead, we're to submit our life to God, to give our lives fully to God. And when we do that, the Bible also promises us and tells us that we can't serve two masters. So what's amazing about that is when we begin to fully serve God, we quit serving sin quite as much in our life. In fact, in Galatians, it says, to walk in the spirit, um, and we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, I think this is so important that the more we pursue a relationship with God, the more we pursue following him, the less attractive some of those sins get. The more we see it through the eyes of our father and we see how ugly and how short-sighted those sins really are and how they don't actually gratify the desires of the flesh. They don't actually bring healing or hope or whatever it is we're trying to fill with those sins in our life. So that's the first thing is submit every aspect of your life to God. The next point is uh, surround yourself with other God submitters, right? I don't think that's a real word, but we just added it in there, okay? Surround yourself with other God submitters. When you are united with Jesus, when you are made one with Jesus, you are actually made one with Jesus with his church, with all those who are followers of Jesus. That is a powerful thing in our lives, and we should tap into that. How big of a blessing is that, that you are not alone, that your spirituality, your relationship with Jesus is not some personal issue that you need to keep to yourself. In fact, it's a corporate act. It's something that we need to engage other people in, that we're doing this together, that we can say, hey, help me not let sin reign in my life. Here's some sins in my life that are taking reign right now. They're controlling me. Help me, help me not do these things. And those other people who are also trying to submit their life to God, they can point out things to you in your life. And sometimes just expressing your struggles to them, God will point out stuff to you in your own life. It's, it's powerful what community and what the body of Christ can do for each other. And the last point here is don't hang around your sin nature's tomb. We are called to run away from sin to not play with it, not to keep going back to it. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee from the desires of your youth and pursue righteousness. So often in our culture, I feel like we draw these lines and we say, this is what sin is. And I'm not going to cross that line, but how close can I get to that line? If I do this, that's not really sin, right? That's just kind of, maybe it's a little edgy, but it's not sin. The Bible says flee from that walk away from that. Why do you go back to that? That has no value, no meaning, no purpose in your life. That part of you is dead. It's been dead for 2,000 years because Jesus paid the price for that. So walk away from those things. So that's don't let sin reign in our life. But again, it's not just about the negative. The next is be ready to be used by God. It says this. It says, I love this verse, and I've read it a couple of times already, but it says, present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Right? What a powerful concept this is, that we present our life to God and we say, okay, God, teach me how to be righteous in my life. Teach me how to serve you in my life. Teach me how to make every aspect of my life following you. And I think one of the best ways to do that is by going to scripture, and as we read the Bible, don't just read the Bible to get new insights or a deeper understanding of, of things, but go to the, in, the Bible saying, God, teach me how to be righteous. Teach me how to follow you and be ready for God to do that in your life. One of the things that I enjoy most about, about preaching actually is not the standing up, it's, it's the preparing the message. And it's a great habit for me to have learned in my life because as I prepare a message, the first step has to be is going to scripture and saying, OK, God, I'm not sure what you want to convict me in of the, you know, in my life, but teach me. Convict me. Show me what it is that you want to change, what you want to mold in my life. And now I try to, every time I go to scripture, go to it with that perspective, saying, OK, God, teach me. Guide me. Help me be the man the father, the husband, the pastor, the follower of you that you've called me to be. And what's amazing is God always works in that way. He always changes my life and points out little things that need to be different. So this morning, we've really uh, looked at this passage of how do we experience the fullness of God's grace? And to experience the fullness of grace is not to submit to sin, but to submit to him, right? And that's that is a powerful thing for us all to, to process. So maybe the kind of application, the takeaway this morning is, what is that aspect of your life, that, that old man in your life, that sin nature in your life that, that you haven't let go of? That even though it's dead and powerless in your life, you still are carrying around. And maybe as we pray here in a couple of seconds, you pray, God, take that part away from me. I don't want that. But don't just leave it there. What is it that God is calling you to? What's that piece of righteousness that he wants from your life? And I think these are a little bit harder to come up with. It's easy to come up with the list of sins in our life, right? We've all got a pretty long list of those. But what is it that God is calling you to do with your life, to pursue him? And maybe this is something that will take this whole week as you you go to scripture. But I I trust and I pray that God will will draw that out and will lead you to, to righteousness in your life. So let's pray and ask God to do this in our life. God, we praise you that you you have died and rose again, that the power of what you've done is so transformative that even 2,000 years ago, we can still be overwhelmed with your grace, overwhelmed with the power of what you've done for us. And I pray that we can live within the fullness of this. God, I pray. Um, just for our own brokenness, for the, the things that we struggle with. I know there are things that are so far outside of your will and your desire for our life. I pray that we see those through your eyes, that we can see the ugliness and the, the um, lack of fulfillment in those things, and that we can learn more and more to pursue this new life that you're calling us to, that we can walk in the newness of life. So God, we praise you, and we honor you today. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church sermon podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.